part series. It won't be. It'll be three, possibly four, because the more I research this, the more I delve into the Word of God, the more I think we need to say that is too seldom said in churches. And so I'm not going to pressure myself to finish this too quickly because I think what I have to share with you is pretty important. And I know I'm going to need my glasses. Oh, my glasses are in my office. <laughs> Thank you, Ainsley. They're, they're in my backpack. <laughs> I, I will need my glasses because I've got some scriptures that I want to read with you. And uh, I know they're in a font which is too small for me to see without a little bit of help. What I would like to focus on today is the purpose of marriage. What, what is its purpose? What is the purpose of marriage from a biblical perspective? In other words, why is it that God holds, thank you very much, that God holds such a high view of marriage? Why is it that when the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus with a question about marriage, he said, well, it was meant to be this way right from the beginning. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. I want to suggest to you that there are a number of very significant purposes of marriage. I'm not necessarily presenting them in order of importance because the Bible doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't have a particular hierarchy and there's no book or even chapter apart from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 which really addresses marriage as its focal point. But yet marriage was important. God gave Moses a, a significant body of law around marriage. Jesus obviously had a very high view of marriage and Paul addresses a number of issues surrounding marriage as well. So here we go. First, we're not designed to be alone. God has not designed us to be alone. In, in Genesis 2 verse 18, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, all of the Bible quotations I have today are from the New Living Translation. Verse 18 in Genesis chapter 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now the King James Version of the Bible uses the expression help meet. And it's interesting that most modern translations stick with helper. But if you have a look at the Hebrew for meet, it actually has a sense of completing something or complementing something or being a counterpart to something. So really, we should find an expression for help meet in the modern translations. Unfortunately, when, when you just use the word helper, the default that many people come to is that the wife's position is somehow lower down in a hierarchy than is the husband's. But that is definitely not the sense in the book of Genesis. 
The help meet was the, the woman was complementary to, was completing the man because we were not designed to be alone. And lest anybody think that helper is somehow a lower in status, biblically speaking, God describes himself as Israel's helper dozens of times in the Bible. And if you have a look, you will see that there are just one or two Hebrew words that are translated helper. And those words are etymologically very similar. In other words, they, they come from the same root. So you see, if God sees himself as Israel and now, of course, our helper, that elevates the role of the woman to a very high level. All right. There's a similarity between the way in which the woman helps the man and the way in which God helps Israel in which he helps us so it's a very revered position we're not designed to be alone the second is procreation it's very interesting that in in uh, Malachi uh, chapter 2 this is what God says now I actually want to just read to you another another scripture this is uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. And um, this is God criticising Israel. And I'll talk more about Israel's relationship with God shortly. This is Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart, do not be unfaithful to your wife. What's the point of having children? God desires that the earth be filled with godly children didn't the Lord make you one with your wife in body and spirit you are his and what does he want godly children from your union the third point I'd like to make is that in relation to the purpose of marriage, that the oneness of marriage represents a relational God. A God who wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with us. Many commentators will say that 
the oneness referred to there in, Gen in Genesis is just a physical union, that is, a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. But I would like to suggest it goes much, much further than that. And the reason is this. Marriage is covenant. Now in covenant, two people really become one. In, in the old days when a covenant was cut, people would actually um, cut their, their wrists and they would mingle their blood together. And in that sense, under covenant, they became one. They were in a union. And see, that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. Remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in, in John? You'll find there he talks about how we're one. We're one with Him and because we're one with Him and because Jesus is one with God, we're one with God. This idea of oneness, this kind of single entity, runs throughout the Word of God. And He uses the covenant of marriage as a representation of the covenant that He has with us. There's a oneness there. That's one of the things that makes marriage so sacred to God. It's a representation of His nature. As a relational God. We all know about Israel. And David referred to Israel in his communion message. Time and time and time again. Israel stopped following after God. They went for idols. Their standards of morality fell. The priestly class began to exploit uh, the poorer people. And God often uses the metaphor as of marriage, particularly uh, sin within marriage, adultery and so on. He uses that to describe the broken relationship between him and Israel. He refers to Israel as an adulteress. He refers to Israel even as a whore. That's in relation to their idolatry. So we see that for whatever reason, I suspect it's because marriage as it existed in those ancient times was the closest thing on earth that God could find to represent the way he wanted to relate to his people. And so marriage today is intended by God to be a metaphor of the relationship he wants to have with his people. Now you can read the history of Israel. Go through the Old Testament. Look at the prophets. Look at the language that the prophets used so often to describe the relationship God wanted and sometimes the relationship that didn't exist between him and Israel. The language of marriage is used constantly. Because marriage is a metaphor, a living metaphor for the nature of God and his desire to relate to us. And as you might expect, the oneness of marriage also reflects the relationship of Christ to the church. Now, the specific verses there are Ephesians uh, chapter 5 verses 31 
to 32. I'll read those verses. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I think I need to do a whole discussion point just on these passages, and I'll tell you why. Because you can't just read that verse in isolation. Yes, the oneness of marriage is intended to reflect the relationship of Christ with the church, right? We're that close. Christ is the head of the church. Christ so loved the church that he actually gave up his earthly life for the church. That's how much he loved the church. And that's how much a husband should love his wife. But I think we need to actually put the whole thing in context. And that requires us to read from at least verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. I don't really have the time to do that. But verses 15 through to 20, they're really focusing on living life by the Spirit's power. That is a requisite for successful marriage. Remember last week when we were looking at some of the data? I shared with you the fact that Christian marriages where both partners are serious about their Christianity, right? They actually take Christianity seriously. They're 35% less likely to have a divorce than the general population. And maybe surprisingly, Christians who are just nominal, who call themselves Christians but don't really live it out, they're 20% more likely to have a divorce than those in the general population. So we need to be spirit then if we're going to have a successful marriage. So forget about all that submission stuff before you can even get to the point where you even feel like submission, you've got to have the Spirit and you've got to know what it means to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 21, down to verse 30, it talks about Spirit-guided relationships. And actually before Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, he actually says we should be submitting one to another. All right? It is very sad that men have sometimes used this scripture as a, a reason for putting women down, for putting their wives down, or really forcing their women to literally submit. I'll tell you what, submission is not about dominion. If you have a look at Genesis chapter 1, God does not say that man has dominion over his wife. That's not God's design, not God's intention. Humanity has dominion over all created things, yes. But there is no way that you can interpret Genesis chapter 1 as saying the man has dominion over his wife. Dominion and submission are not the same thing. So before we get to the point 
where our marriage can be an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one, we've got to be led by the Spirit. We've got to be living our lives by the Spirit. And we have to have a heart which is open to developing Spirit-guided relationships. But as I say, this will take a whole discussion point and it is something for the future. The next point that I want to make is that marriage is a safe environment for sexual relationships. Genesis uh, chapter 2 verse 25 says this. Now, the, and this is before the fall, by the way. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. See, within marriage, there is no shame in the sexual relationship. So often outside of marriage, because there's exploitation, sexual relationship is accompanied by shame, either at the time or later. But within the security of marriage, of Christian marriage, there's no shame. There's no shame in nakedness. There is no shame in the sexual relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 5 now, now listen, this is, this is quite important. You see, uh, Corinth, of course, was influenced by uh, Greek culture, but also by the Roman culture. The Roman culture was kind of the supreme culture in a way all over uh, the known world at the time. In Roman culture, there were no boundaries on sex. Sex within marriage, sex outside of marriage, sex between uh, the same sex, uh, like sex with slaves. It was sex, sex, sex. And, and, and you see, when the Gentiles came to the Lord, they, were, they still had culture, you see? And you see it even today. You know, fornication is rife in the church. Fornication is just sex outside the confines of marriage. Fornication is rife in the church today. And that's partly because when people become new Christians, they come with their culture. And it can take a while for the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, to work through the culture and help somebody get rid of all of their culture, which is inconsistent with the Word of God. But I personally feel that we don't hear enough about the real biblical foundations for marriage preached in our churches now I can tell you what I'm going to go on now and talk about sex now the honest truth is when I've heard preachers talk about sex they don't get past the fun bit and I think that's far far too shallow oh, I don't think that's the kind of God we have there's far more to it than that. Now look, yes it is fun. I can say that from experience. And I'm happy and unashamed to say it because I have a Christian marriage. And there is no shame. Read the Song of Solomon. Sexiest book in the Bible. You know... It's a wonder that it wasn't banned in times past. 
And you see, if we just preach that sex is fun, our young people in particular, I won't value sex in the way that God intends us to. Because if we just say sex is fun, it's no different to going to the movies or going go-karting or going across the road and shooting each other with gel guns. It's all fun. But see, sex has got other purposes, one of which is bonding. And again, read the book of Solomon. Read the book of Solomon. Uh, the Song of Solomon. It's not all that long. And look at the pictures, the images that are described. Yes, sex is fun, but there's also a bonding function. It really brings our souls together. And that's why some authors have said that if we have sex outside of marriage, we still end up with soul ties. Right? It's because there is bonding that goes on. The next thing is procreation. Yes, God designed sex so that we'd have babies and populate the world. And we've already quoted from Malachi chapter 2. But the, the last one here, which may in fact be the most important, and which I have never, ever heard preached in church, is that the sexual act is affirmation of covenant. What happens in a covenant? Right, in the old days, the blood was mingled, so the two became one. In the sexual act, there is a physical representation of covenant when the two physically become one. That may be the most important function of sex. The only safe environment for that is within marriage. The only, I'll tell you why, because outside marriage, the primary purpose for sex is just fun. And that's not enough to cause one person to value another person as God values that person. Now I want to move on to some pretty serious stuff. Not that that wasn't serious. This perhaps is more practical than theological, but marriage provides a safe, actually safer environment for women. The reason I put safer there is we have to understand we live in a fallen world. Not every marriage, not even every Christian marriage is, pardon me, is perfect. So it's probably better to use the term safer rather than safe. This is based on Australian data. And, and I, I want to share something with you briefly. It is very, very difficult to find data that distinguishes between marriage and especially Christian marriage and other forms of relationship. And um, I, I, I'll show you some quotes. I think they're on the next slide. You know, the authorities, the public servants who are dealing with the data and writing reports, they are very, very reluctant to concede that Christian marriage has something going for it. 
that other forms of relationship don't have. We live in a society that does not want to concede anything to Christianity. But you and I know that's where the truth is. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We'd be doing other things this morning. Now, this is, this is real data. Uh, this data is from a very recent uh, report published by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Women who were living in de facto relationships were more likely to experience violence from a partner in the last two years than women who were in a registered marriage. Now, registered marriage can be a Christian marriage or uh, a non-Christian marriage, okay? 4.9% of women in de facto relationships, 1.8%. Big difference, isn't it? Big difference. Of all women who have experienced partner violence in the last two years, it is estimated that 120,000 are not married, 83,400 in a registered marriage, 50,200 are in a de facto relationship. They're, they're numbers, but given that the vast majority of um, partner relationships of people who are in a marriage, marriage is much safer, a much safer environment for a woman than not being married. Marriage, and I'm sorry that the font is so small, but there's a lot of information on what to include here. Marriage provides a safer environment for children. Now, I almost need to give a warning here. There's some pretty tough stuff here. And, and I want to do a little bit of kind of theology first. I, I, I'm just going to read through what's on the screen and then explain it a little bit. In Leviticus 18, which Leviticus 18 is the chapter where there's a whole lot of law concerning marriage uh, written down. Then kind of in the middle of it, almost out of the blue, is this statement. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Now, Molech was a Canaanite god associated with child sacrifice. And many commentators argue that the reason why God instructed Israel to kill every man, woman and child in Canaan when they went into the promised land was because of their practice of child sacrifice. Listen to this data. I can't get data for Australia. Listen to this data. In 2016, the rate of abortions, that is medically induced abortions in the United States, was 38 per 100 live births for unmarried women and 4.1 per 100 live births for married women. Right? Among unmarried women, the prevalence of abortion is about 3.5 times what it is for married women. Now, I do know that the overall rate of abortion in Australia is much higher than it is in the United States. It's about 19.1 per 100 live births. There's about 620,000 abortions in America each year. There's about 80,000 in Australia. Now, in much of the world, where medical services and, and um, birth control services and so on are not very highly developed, instead of abortion, they resort to infanticide 
sometimes it can be you know, leaving a child out uh, exposed in, in the weather and so on or just not feeding them and so on. This is from an organisation called Humanium. Unwanted pregnancies are the most common cause of infanticide nowadays. This may be because women or families do not have enough resources to look after their children and because in many parts of the world there is no access to modern forms of birth control or medical abortion. Another cause of infanticide associated with unwanted pregnancies may be illegitimate births. In some cultures, such births are highly undesirable since they can dishonour a family. It is likely that the total number of babies and very young children who die because of medically induced abortion or infanticide is about 300 million per year. 300 million per year. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molly. 300 million per year. 80 million girl babies have simply disappeared in China. 20 million girl babies have simply disappeared in India. You need to be a strong person to read through the data. I want to talk a little bit about God's instructions to Israel that are recorded in Leviticus 18. In, in, and I've taken this from another source from Bible.org and it's, just, it's, a, it's a very, very thorough um, analysis of Leviticus chapter 18. Verses 6 to 18 actually set out all of the, the what you might call the inner boundary of sexual relationships, essentially meaning no sex or marriage with close relatives. Verses 19 to 20 are the middle boundary of sex within the marriage. That's the only sex permitted, either in the Old Testament or New Testament. Verses 22 to 23 set out the outer boundary of prohibited sexual relationships, homosexuality and so on. Then verses 24 to 29 outline the consequences for any nation, notice nation, that ignores those restrictions. And there are many civilizations that have disappeared and one of the glaring um, characteristics of those civilizations was no barriers on sex as was the case with the Roman Empire. Now, I haven't done enough study of history to know whether that's the case throughout uh, all societies and throughout the whole of history, but the Bible clearly sets out consequences for a whole nation when we forsake God's ways in marriage. Verse 21, which is the verse which is quoted on the screen, it acknowledges the danger to children that exists outside the middle boundary, right? The danger to children that exists outside the middle. So as soon as we start engaging in sexual relationships outside of the covenant 
of marriage, then children are at risk. Child abuse is more common where the natural parents are not married. Now here are some statements that I've taken from Australian, the Australian Institute of Family Studies, and you'll see what I mean about their reluctance to concede that marriage is different to anything else. While most of the available research suggests that children in sole mother families and step families tend to be at higher risk of maltreatment than those in married families, not all findings are consistent. Well, that's often the case in sociological research. But the bulk of research suggests that children are less safe outside of marriage. Sole mother families, sole father families and step or blended families are overrepresented in Australia's child protection systems. Then it goes on to say, however, there are a number of limitations to the Australian child protection data, which must be noted when interpreting this finding. But nevertheless, that's what the data that are available tend to show. Sole mother families, sole father families and step or blended families are overrepresented in Australia's child protection systems. Now I want to show you a little bit of data here. It's, this is quite old data, it goes back to 2011-2012, but in the, the, uh, the middle column there, that shows you the, the breakdown of family structures. So the most common family structure, 73%, what they call intact two-parent families. So uh, mum and dad are together, right? Now that includes both marriage and uh, de facto relationships, all right? So or, or cohabitation. They haven't split um, registered marriages out from other relationships. 70, so 73% of families are intact two parents their share of what they call maltreatment substantiations, that is an allegation has been made, has been investigated and found to actually be, be the case. That's what a substantiation is, 32.4%. Right. So 73% of, the, of the, the, how the families are what we call intact, but only 32.4% of the substantiations are associated with intact families. Sole mother, 17% of families, 33.7% of substantiations. Step or blended families, 7% of the family structure, 14.9%. You get the picture, don't you? Children are at far less risk of abuse when mum and dad are together. I have some more to show you. This diagram here shows the different types of abuse that uh, children who are subjects of substantiations during 2018-19. This is from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Uh, the darker bar on the chart is boys and the lighter bar is girls. You can see the most common form of abuse is emotional abuse. There's physical abuse, that's on the left, then sexual abuse, more unfortunately, more um, common for girls. And then the one on the right is neglect. In 2018-19, 
there are 170,151 children who received child protection services. 47,516 were what they call subjects of substantiations. Children are safer when mum and dad are married. Well, there's a lot of good reasons to believe in marriage, aren't there? It's the safe place for sex. It's a safer place for women. It's a safer place for children. Christian marriage is intended by God to reflect the relationship that he has with his people, the relationship that Christ has with the church. Within the marriage, sex, yes, it's fun, but it has a bonding function as well. And also, of course, procreation, because God wants us to have godly children. Now, I want to complete our discussion on, on marriage by, ref, by referring to biblical grounds for divorce because this is a question that always comes up. You may not like everything I have to say, but I do believe I can substantiate it based on Scripture. And Scripture